Faith is at the very heart of Christianity. It's crucial. Without faith, the Bible tells us, it is impossible to please God. But more than any other part of the spiritual life, faith is misunderstood. When we get this wrong, we set ourselves up for a painful crash. Hey friends, I'm Mark Allen Shelsky, and this is The Apprenticeship Way, a podcast about spiritual growth following the way of Jesus. This is episode 30, Faith Isn't Certainty. My normal routines and plans for this podcast have been completely scrambled by this whole COVID-19 thing that we are all living through, something I never expected. Our family has scrambled to reconfigure our lives. Distance learning for the kids, getting our church family transitioned into an online community, figuring out what we needed to make that work and who we could help. And then for me, an introvert who really loves having my own space, figuring out how to work with the whole family home all the time. I know you're feeling it too. And then for this podcast, I was stuck. I have some fairly serious lung issues, and so I've been self-quarantining as much as possible, but my podcast studio is across town, and so I've not even really had access to be able to make new episodes. And I've been feeling completely stuck in all of my creative work. So finally, I made the decision to reconfigure my home workspace, brought a bunch of gear home, scrambled to figure out some lighting, set something up so that regardless of how the next few months play out, I can get back on track doing what I love and sharing with you the things that might be helpful for your journey at this time. It's been rough getting to this point. I know that you're under the exact same kind of stress, pressure, emotional weight, everything feels harder. It's really been something, hasn't it? So today's topic is one that I wrote before I even knew that coronavirus was a thing. But as I finally got back on track and started editing, it seemed really relevant to our shared experience right now. I mean, with all the upheaval that we have been experiencing, what we really are longing for is certainty. I think that's part of the urgency around the motivation to get back to normal as quickly as possible. Most of us, when we get right down to it, want a life that feels predictable and safe. And so, in a moment, we're going to talk about that desire and maybe how God might not be as interested in things being predictable and safe as we are. But before we do that, I'd like to share a couple of things with you. About eight months ago, the Untangled Heart workshop came into existence. I collaborated with a good friend of mine, Byron Kaler, who's a trauma therapist, and together we created a one-day training focusing on helping people understand and navigate their emotions. We did the event live, and it was a fantastic experience, and we had planned on starting to do it live regularly. But circumstances have changed quite a bit, and we have not been able to do that. So instead, we've taken all of the teaching that we created for this and made an online course. And so right now, if you're feeling a lot of big feelings, or you're surprised at how our stay-at-home circumstances have brought up stuff for you, grief or anger or fear, or if you've been thinking that you'd really like to improve your ability to be present to the people that you love, maybe being in the same house with them every day all day is bringing up stuff, well, the Untangled Heart Workshop might be a useful resource for you. 
You can learn more of what's included in this online course and see the lesson topics for yourself over at www.untangledheartcourse.com. I'll put a link on the screen and in the show notes. Another way I might be able to help right now is by being available to do some online speaking for your community about emotions. A lot of our churches and small groups and other communities are meeting by video conference right now. And that certainly has its limitations. I mean, we have all gotten to the point where we've done just too many Zoom calls in one day and that feels really heavy. But there are some benefits. And one of those benefits is that it's really easy to bring in guest speakers. There's no travel, there's no hotel required. So guest speakers are suddenly much more accessible and much more affordable. So if it would be helpful to have me come and talk to your community about the role of emotions in faith, or myths that Christians sometimes believe about emotions, or how emotions work and why we're all so tired and edgy right now, or how we can listen more closely to our emotions so that we can navigate this experience in a healthy, spiritually mature way, I would be thrilled to set up something with you. I'm also able to help with general pulpit support. A lot of pastors are wiped out right now with all of the work necessary to lead a digital community. So if you're one of those pastors and you need a week off from preaching, I might be able to help. If I can be of service in any of these ways, you can get a hold of me at the link in the show notes or on the screen. I'd love to talk with you and see if what I have to offer would be of benefit to you and your community. All right, onward. Why certainty is almost always bad for your faith. If you grew up in the church, you have undoubtedly heard this line. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You, you might even have that verse memorized. It's Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament, and it's the answer that a lot of people give when they're explaining just what the heck faith even is. It's memorable and quotable. It seems like a crisp, clear definition. It's an important definition to have. After all, just a few verses after that, we're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, another popular Bible version translates that verse this way. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Faith is confidence. Faith is assurance. Faith is evidence. It's not a very big leap to get from those words to the idea that faith means certainty. In the church community that I grew up in, someone with strong faith was someone who was confident, assured, even certain when it came to their beliefs about God and what God wanted. I was taught that that kind of certainty is what pleases God. Does that sound familiar to you? Is that a part of your story? Well, today I want to suggest that this is, in fact, not what faith is at all. I'm going to suggest that this view of faith might actually derail your entire spiritual life. Let me tell you a story. I was a youth pastor in 1997. Now, youth ministry is always awash with new fads. Everyone's always trying the next new thing to try and reach the kids. When you're constantly trying to keep them engaged and attending, and, and maybe if you're lucky, growing— it's a constant struggle for new ideas and new material. In 1997, The New Fad was a little book that came out and swept youth ministry by storm. That book was called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. The author was a young man named Josh Harris. Now, inside a very few years, this book had shown up in nearly every youth group I knew about. There was a book, there was a workbook, there was a curriculum. Eventually, there were conferences that you could take your youth group to. And the book made a compelling promise. 
It said that if Christian teens would avoid dating in the way commonly accepted in culture, the results would be a great Christian marriage filled with passionate, godly sex. So I Kissed Dating Goodbye offered a certain roadmap for Christian teens. Not a certain roadmap like an option, like a roadmap of certainty for Christian teens, promising that if they lived a life that honored God by the book's definition, they would reap all of the benefits. The only problem is that that roadmap did not deliver. The kids who grew up in those youth groups are all now between 35 and 45 years old. They are part of a generation that is a mess when it comes to intimacy. Many of them didn't get the happy marriage with lots of God-honoring sex that they were promised. A lot of them got divorced. A lot of them ended up with sexual dysfunction and a lot of shame around their body and sexual experiences. Not a small number of these kids in this generation have left the church specifically over these issues. In 2016, Josh Harris publicly acknowledged that the ideas in his book had hurt some people. Two years later, in 2018, he disavowed the book entirely and removed it from printing. And then in 2019, the promise from that book failed even for him. In July of 2019, on Instagram, Harris announced that he and his wife were getting divorced, and additionally, that his faith was undergoing a change. These are his words from that Instagram post. He said, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. That book, So I Kissed Dating Goodbye, was so tempting. There were two reasons I think it caught fire the way that it did. First, in the 80s and 90s, youth pastors had one very important job. Keep kids from having sex. Do you think I'm kidding about that? I was a youth pastor for 15 years during this era. I worked with hundreds of high school students. Not one parent ever asked me about my theology or what I was teaching in Bible study or in what ways I was helping their kids become people of character. Not one parent. But every single year, I had multiple parents ask me how I was going to address questions like, how far is too far? Is making out a sin? And when was I going to preach on the importance of waiting until marriage? In that context, having a roadmap felt like a godsend. The second reason that book was so tempting is that it offered certainty. It laid out a path to a God-honoring marriage, complete with steps and boundaries, and it promised a result, the happy kind of marriage that you really long for. It wasn't just youth pastors and parents who resonated with the book. Kids really got into it. Those kids, teens in the 80s and 90s, they had seen more divorce than any generation before. Their parents were the children of the sexual revolution. Many of their homes were places that were deeply painful and uncomfortable. These teens, the ones that were in my youth group, many of them wanted something different than what they were seeing in their homes modeled. And this book offered not just hope for something different. This book offered what felt like certainty. Now think back to that Hebrews 1 passage for a moment. Now, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, the other popular translation subbed in the words, 
proof, and assurance. Those words feel good. We want faith to be about certainty, proof, and assurance. That's understandable. Certainty feels safe. It feels hopeful. It feels like God is in control. See, there's a dark side to this idea. If your certainty ever wavered, that meant your faith was weak. And if your faith was weak, that meant bad things might happen to you. Maybe God wouldn't answer your prayers. Maybe your church wouldn't grow if you were a leader. Maybe God wouldn't bless you. Maybe God wouldn't bless us because we weren't pleasing God. Did you ever feel that? Did you ever hear that kind of message delivered to you or in your community? And so a lot of us thought we needed to have certainty about matters of faith. We had to be certain that God created the world in six literal days and rested on the seventh. We had to be certain that the Bible was without error in every word, in every translation. We had to have certainty that Mary was a literal virgin when Jesus was born. Our doctrine was the final, complete, and right interpretation of Scripture. That meant that preachers should be men and women should be wives and gay people were evil and Catholics were going to hell. Your tradition probably had its own list, maybe different than the one I grew up with. Ultimately, we wanted certainty that we were right, that we were safe. So when I read Josh Harris's statement on Instagram, one part of what he said felt so deeply sad to me. He said, I've undergone a shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. So he was honest to say that he'd undergone a massive shift in his spiritual beliefs. And to talk about that, he mentions two terms. You heard that, deconstruction and backsliding. He said deconstruction was the popular term. Backsliding was the biblical one. He equated them as being two words talking about the same thing. The result of this is that at least when he wrote those words, Josh thinks that he's not a Christian anymore. His particular Christian worldview that he grew up under doesn't have room for anything less than certainty. And now that he's not certain any longer, that must mean he's on the outside. If he can't be certain, that must mean he's not a part of the community of Jesus' followers. That is profoundly sad to me. And that right there is the problem with this view of faith. Fundamentalism always defines faith as certainty. That certainty can come in precisely two flavors. It can be, I know that I know that I know certainty. I've studied it and I know I'm right. Or it can be, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. Which means I may not have studied it myself, but I've read that it's in the Bible, or I've heard that it's in the Bible, or I was taught that it's in the Bible, and that's the end of the discussion for me. In either case, I'm right, and I'm certain about that. Brian Zond calls this faith as certitude, and he defines this kind of faith as mental assent, mental assent towards something as if it were an absolute uh, empirical fact. But do you see that's not faith at all? The problem is that God is invisible. God is spirit, and spirit is beyond our normal senses. Morality is about character, and character is a matter of the heart. We can't see other people's hearts. We don't even know our own hearts all that well. All our ideas about ultimate reality, like heaven and hell and eternity, are not scientifically verifiable. Because of this, if our faith requires certitude, we really only have three choices. We can bubble ourselves. That means we can build our lives in such a way that we never even need to encounter information or ideas that challenge our faith. 
And so we only read approved books by approved authors and pastors. We only have relationships with like-minded people. We surround ourselves on social media with news sources and people that affirm our pre-existing ideas. We build a structure of denial so that the ideas that we are certain about can never be challenged. Another angle is that we can become warriors. We study our views and we learn how to defend them. We, we come to see all conversation as polemical, fighting, arguing, trying to convince people. We are out to show the other people that our way of thinking is the right way of thinking. Increasingly, we see anyone who disagrees with us as an enemy, even someone out to hurt us or to destroy our way of life. Our commitment to truth feels like a call to arms. The third option that I've seen happen over and over again is that we just crash. This is what I think happened to Josh Harris. Something happens in our lives that challenges our certainty, and for whatever reason, it seems like God or the church doesn't come through for us, and our belief system begins to topple like dominoes. And so we end up repudiating our former beliefs because we're no longer certain about them. But this is the surprising trick. Because our mental framework is still built on pursuing certainty, we believe there's nothing left for us in faith or in the community of faith or even in God's eyes. None of these three options are a vibrant life of faith. There's got to be something more, right? Pete Enns, who is a biblical scholar and professor, wrote a helpful book on the subject called The Sin of Certainty. You get that title? The Sin of Certainty? I'm going to share a quote with you from this book. This one's a little longer. Listen to these words. Certainty leads to a preoccupation with correct thinking, making sure familiar beliefs are defended and supported at all costs. It reduces the life of faith to sentry duty, a 24-7 task of pacing the ramparts and scanning the horizon to fend off incorrect thinking in ourselves and in others. A faith like that is stressful and tedious to maintain. Moving towards different ways of thinking, even just trying it on for a while to see how it fits, is perceived as a compromise. But nothing could be further from the truth. When we grab hold of correct thinking for dear life, when we refuse to let go because we think that doing so means letting go of God, when we dig in our heels and stay firmly planted, even when we sense that we need to let go and move on, at that point, we are trusting our thoughts rather than God. We have turned away from God's invitation to trust in order to cling to an idol. That idol is certainty. Certainty or certitude, as Brian Zond refers to it, is not faith. And certainty is not what God requires of you. In fact, a commitment to certainty is a big danger to your faith. Why? Learning requires evaluating current beliefs and updating them as needed. That's the normal process that happens in our brain as we grow and mature. Learning requires letting go of ideas that have been superseded with better information. So do you see what this means? This means that faith requires deconstruction. Josh Harris equated deconstruction with backsliding and thought that meant that he was leaving the faith, that that was his only option. Now, I don't know Josh, and I can't speak for his spiritual life, but I've heard the same complaint many other times from other people. I've seen it leveled at good Christians as an accusation. Question the right thing, and you must not even be Christian anymore. This couldn't be further from the truth. 
growing in faith requires deconstruction. It's a part of the natural process of maturing. You deconstruct ideas you've held so that you can take the pieces apart, let go of what is not helpful, what is not true, what is not fully realized, and reconstruct something better. When you took algebra, you had to deconstruct ideas you learned in elementary math in order to reconstruct a deeper understanding of how math actually works. When Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had to deconstruct his ideas about God in order to reconstruct new ideas about Jesus. When Martin Luther discovered grace in the book of Romans, he had to deconstruct his understanding of that book of the Bible and even his view of the structure of the church and and many other aspects of his theology. His reconstruction was the beginning of the Protestant movement. Deconstruction is not something to be feared. It means that you're learning. Important note here, this is crucial. Doubt is a part of the process. I used to think I was right about such and so. Now I wonder if I might have missed something. I wonder. That's doubt. I wonder if I don't have the whole picture right. Let me take this belief apart and look under the hood. Let me see how the dots connect. Maybe part of this is helpful. Maybe part of this is what needs to be let go of. That process I'm describing, it's not bad or wrong or unfaithful. That process is how you grow. George MacDonald, the famous Scottish preacher, said, Do you love your faith so little that you have never battled a single fear lest your faith should not be true? Where there are no doubts, no questions, no perplexities, there can be no growth. Doubt, uncertainty, and deconstruction are not only a natural part of human growth, they're an essential part of our relationship with God. God is infinite. God is so completely other that no matter how right we are when we talk about God, we're still wrong. No matter how much time we spend learning about God, there will always be more to learn. Frederick Buechner wrote, without somehow destroying me in the process. How could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there were no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. So, if faith isn't certainty, then what is it? In my view, the best understanding comes when we replace the word faith with trust. Trust is a relational word. Trust implies a kind of practical confidence that incorporates the mystery of relationship. Faith was never meant to be certainty about your God facts. Faith in Scripture has always described a relational reality. It's defining the kind of trust you have in your relationship with God, the kind of trust you have in who God is as a being. Think about that. In relationships, we don't know everything about the other person. Every other person in their deep places is a mystery to us. But we do know some things. We know how that person has been toward us in the past. If we spent time with them, we have some sense of their character. Maybe we have a lot of shared experiences. Ultimately, we decide to entrust a certain level of ourselves to that person based on the little that we know. The way we act toward them is based on the level of trust that we have taken on. That thing I'm describing? That's faith. We don't know how the other person will respond. We don't have ironclad certainty. We have relational trust. Relational trust is enough to act on. That's faith. Now back to the book of Hebrews where we started. There's another passage there that is famously referred to when we talk about faith. Hebrews chapter 11. 
sometimes we call it the Faith Hall of Fame, right? It presents this litany of famous characters from Scripture, people who uh, are acted it presents this litany of famous characters from Scripture, people who acted on faith, people that we think of as faith heroes. Some of them had amazing, even miraculous things happen to them. Some of them didn't. Some of them got killed or ended up homeless or in poverty. At the end of the chapter, all of them are affirmed for their faith. But here's something we often miss. The Faith Hall of Fame passage, it ends with a challenge. The first few verses of chapter 12 are actually the close of the presentation that is started in chapter 11. And those two verses that start chapter 12 are the whole reason the people in chapter 11 get named for their faith. This is where that whole section was headed. Listen to these words. Therefore, that's because of everything in chapter 11, therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. In this verse, we find a beautiful picture of what faith really is. Faith is an orientation of our heart that allows us to move forward, that allows us to keep running the race, even in the face of obstacles. Brian Zahn puts it this way, faith is an orientation of the soul toward God in the form of deep trust. Faith isn't certainty. It never was. Faith is trust. The trust that we have in God's character as revealed in Jesus. The trust that with what little we really know about God and the universe, we know enough to keep moving forward. We know enough to trust. May you let go of your desperate need for certainty and instead grow in your trust for who God is and how God is present with you now. In this one present moment, even in a moment as uncertain as a pandemic. Thanks for listening. You'll find the show notes for today's episode and any links that I mentioned at www.markallenchelsky.com forward slash TAW030. Now I'm getting back on track, like I said, and that means I'm writing again and I'm making the podcast again. And if any of this is helpful to you in your journey, subscribe to my email list. Uh, I email once or twice a month. It's been once a month, really, all during this time. And that email includes links to blog posts, a new podcast, and other things that I found out on the internet that might be helpful to you in your spiritual journey. And of course, it would be such a gift to me if you would do all those helpful podcast things. You know, subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Subscribe on YouTube if you prefer the video. Rate and review the podcast so that other people can learn about it. Most importantly, this is the big one. Share it with someone you think would benefit. Was this conversation a conversation that brought up someone that came to your mind? Send this to them so they can listen to it too. That's how podcasts grow, and it won't happen without you. Until next time, remember, in this one present moment, even crazy moments like this, you are loved, you are known, and you are not alone.